Wednesday at 8 p.m. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. Welcome to Music Biz 101 and more, your free advice radio show and podcast. Find us every Wednesday at Brave New Radio 88.7 FM on the campus of William Patterson University in Cedar Queen, New Jersey, or on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio as a podcast. I'm your co-host, Professor David Kerfield, but you're the co-host, Dr. Esteban. Yep. We are alive, and we, we are pre-recording what you're listening to right now from Nashville, Tennessee, at the Music Biz 2016 Convention! Music City. This is the Music, Music City. City. And we should give thanks to Jim Donio, the president Absolutely. of the Music Association, uh, for giving us the space here in luscious, sexy room 202 yes, in the Renaissance Hotel. And uh, they gave us all this space for our William Patterson University students, like Alyssa Warner, who is here. Alyssa Warner, William Patterson, music management major. And she is here with other students connecting and interviewing great guests, like the guest we have named Serona Elton. Serona Elton is here as well. But before we move on, we have two other thanks that we must give. First, we want to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno, Inc., and White Hat Management with artists like Charlie Puth, Dave Matthews, Sharon Jones, the Dap Kings, and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com. And also we want to give thanks to Christine Vey, a wealth manager and the president of Vey Wealth Management. Christine has helped many of our professionals at William Patterson University to manage their investments, plan out their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement or you have questions on anything from investment portfolio management to insurance retirement planning, give Christine a call at 732-455-1510. The number, the number again is 732-455-1510. 1510. Email her at christine at oyveywealth.com. No, it's christine at veywealth.com for advisement. Your money, your values, our focus. And now it's your interview, Alyssa Warner with Serona Elton. Thank you for that illustrious introduction. Thank you very much. It for was very well done. I only spit a little. No, I only got some of it on my glasses. Good. So it's fine. Perfect. Serona, how are you? I am great. I am enjoying this interview already. It's pretty comical. It is comical. It's great. So you have quite an impressive bio, I would say. Thank you. Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Music, Media, and Industry at the University of Miami Frost School of Music. And you went there. I did. I got my master's there. And how is, how is it for you going to school and then coming back and teaching? Is that like totally weird for you how is it no it was very cool um you know coming back to teach I I started teaching there in 2006 and I had been away from the school for over 10 years um but it was amazing how how quickly you feel comfortable and familiar again and there were still people there that I remember from when I was a student and Kane Records was still going strong and I had started that as a student um so it actually felt like a homecoming it was very very comfortable, very cool. Not weird at all. Just really nice. So you're like the prom queen there. Everybody knows you. <laughs> I know about that. <laughs> but I do know a lot of folks. That's very cool. What made you decide law? What was the groundbreaking moment? Like, this is what I want to do. So actually, law was connected to music business. It wasn't law sort of more abstractly. Um, and my, my passion for the music industry started when I was really young. I grew up um, in North Miami, and my father was in the film and television business, and he had a business office in the business office wing of Criteria Recording Studio, which is a world-famous 
recording studio and at the time a very popular place with the Bee Gees um, amongst many others and I remember one day I was sitting in the lobby which is you know wall-to-wall platinum and gold records and I think Barry Gibb pulled up out of some limousine you know and there were groupies at the fence and um, and he came inside and, and said hello and I ended up getting an autographed record which I still have um, and it just sort of blew my mind at that point I thought, wow, this is just so cool, so glamorous. Um, And I fell in love with music at that point. Then, not too long after that, I realized I had no musical talent of my own. (laughs) It's good that you find these things out early. Um, And I did. And so I knew at that point, though, that I had to be connected to music. And if it wasn't going to be as a performer, it had to be on the business side. So that started young. And, in fact, there's a picture in my my 10th grade, I think, 10th or 11th grade high school yearbook of me holding a bunch of records saying I'm going to run a record label one day. I mean, that's how far back that goes. And so I knew music business from that far back. And uh, if you paid attention to sort of who a lot of the label heads were at big music companies in, let's say, the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, a lot of the very senior people were all lawyers. Um, And so what really drove me towards law was thinking still at that point, I still wanted to, you know, become a a label president. I've since abandoned that dream. But um, I did want that at the time when I was getting my master's degree. I thought, well, wow, I really need to get this law degree to have an extra tool in my toolbox and and not hit a glass ceiling where I might not be able to go even further because I don't have the law degree. So so for me, it wasn't just a sort of um, a separate independent passion for law. It was music business and wanting to move into executive levels of music business and feeling like if you, you know understand how how much the music business really is driven by intellectual property ownership um, I felt like I needed to have that knowledge to, to really get me to where I wanted to go. Could I interject? Yes, I'm absolutely. curious, at what point, why did you give up the dream of running a label? I'm sure it's, there are a lot of reasons, but what... Because it? artists make me crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a pretty, um, a pretty hardcore business person, and artists, and that's what makes them so amazingly special, often don't think like business people. Mm-hmm. And I just don't relate well to artists the way you need to, I think, to be a label president. And so I just realized early on that I actually do my best when I'm dealing with lawyers or business managers or accountants or even IT folks as opposed to the creative community. I mean, I love them. My personal life is full of them. But from a business point of view, I just felt more comfortable dealing sort of with much more of the hardcore business side of things. And obviously a label president, I would say, is probably far more involved in creative than business, if not half and half. Um, and that piece just wasn't wasn't there. I just kind of come to, came to think of them as a little crazy in a good way. <laughs> and so it makes them do what they do. But I just thought, I'm not well suited for that kind of crazy. It's great because <laughs> yeah. we've had a few interviews today where people just... Usually people want to, you know, yeah, yeah. you see so many students, I want to be an A&R. Yeah. Everyone wants to oh, be an A&R. That's what be every so freshman in music business student yeah. says, don't they? And it's great where you and we had another guy earlier, uh, Sean Carnes, for example, who just all of a sudden hit a point where he's like, that's not what I want. Yeah. I know what I want. And they figure it out. And you figured these things out relatively, I don't want to say quickly, but on the earlier sides, so that way you could navigate yeah, to towards get to where them. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that I tell my students is figure out what you like separate from music industry. How are you wired? Yeah. You know, are you a nine to five? Are you a night owl? Are you happiest behind a desk? 
or do you hate that and you just want to be talking to people? Mm-hmm. You know, and and what part of the country do you think you might really thrive in? Are you like a New York pace kind of person or are you like, I need something a bit more laid back? Mm-hmm. Figure those things out about yourself and let that help drive you towards where you want to be in the business. I am a nine to five kind of person. Not that I ever finish work by five. So, okay, nine to nine. But I'm an, I'm an office person. I don't want to be out in the clubs at night other than Friday and Saturday with my friends. I have other friends who that would just be like the worst possible thing you could do to them is stick them in an office during the day. Um, and so A&R really requires a lifestyle. You know, it's, it's not just... Um, the kinds of work, you know, okay, fine, you're meeting artists, yes, you're involved in the creative process, selecting songs, producers, whatever it may be, but there's also, you know, you're spending a lot more time talking to people than you are, let's say, dealing with emails. Um, that may not be for you. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad I found out early before I spent too much time pursuing something that wasn't clicking well for me, and um, I think it's important for students to kind of figure out how are you wired, because I'll help you figure out where to fit in. I thought it was the audition for vinyl. <laughs> you mean when I didn't get the part, I said, <laughs> I'll forget it. Right. So That's my little secret. It's out now. <laughs> so you were in school, you know, Eight years? Was it four years oh, of bachelor's? Gosh. Longer than the how long? Were you well, it was for? four years for a bachelor's, yeah. then two years for a master's, and then I did law school, but I did it while working full time at EMI. And oh. so, when you go to law school part time, it's four years, not three. Oh. Um, but their version of part time is hardly part time. Mm-hmm. They should call it a little less than full time. <laughs> so instead of five courses a semester, it's four courses a semester, wow. and you're in class Monday through Thursday, either six to nine or six to ten p.m. For four years. Mm-hmm. So you had a grind. You oh my gosh. I don't think yeah. I could do it again. I really don't think I could do it again. You've got to do you those might, things while you're young and you have energy. Yeah. <laughs> you might pay for it? No. No. Oh. Music companies a, generally don't pay for a lot anything. of school. I was a polygram and ah. they paid for my master's. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, what so kind of, a, if you don't mind me asking, time frame was um, that? 93 to 98. Okay. So, so I was yeah. at EMI um, starting in 95 mm-hmm. and they did, there was, they gave you a little bit of money. It was like twenty five hundred dollars. You're like that was books. You know that mm-hmm. didn't cover much, mm-hmm. and they generally just didn't have. They weren't doing a lot of that, so mm-hmm. it became less and less common and more of an exceptional kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So no, no, I, I self funded and I got a lot of scholarships, which was great. But you know that was on my dime with a little the, bit of book support. <laughs> when you were there, were there many other uh, coworkers, colleagues who were going to school? Because really. I was the yeah. in my company, I was the only person taking advantage of this tuition reimbursement. Wow, how crazy company. those people should That's be kicking said. themselves That's in the said, butt right I now. Tell yeah. people, you guys, Ugh. somebody wants to pay for your. You'd be crazy. Yeah. You'd be absolutely crazy. Yeah. No, there weren't there weren't mm-hmm. others that I could think of. Um, none that were in my sort of my work circle that right. I knew of. I was the only one crazy enough to maintain that lifestyle. <laughs> but you know, but that's also the um, music business sort of uh, moniker. That it's a great business run by a bunch of C students. Yeah, <laughs> I don't believe that. Their bachelors is, well, it's it's not a credential crazy business that yeah. we're all in. No, here. that's very true. You know, mm-hmm. That's it, the bachelors, and then let's do something. So. That's true. But, you know, it's interesting. I think, though, that um, definitely for law, and I think in other areas as well, you start um, seeing the – you start seeing people that do have more advanced degrees, that mm-hmm. have, you know – learn something, know something about sort of hardcore marketing and branding, and then bring that to the music business as opposed to just sort of stumbling through it in the music business. Mm-hmm. I meet more people that have master's degrees. Mm-hmm. Law certainly is full of a bunch of people that went to Harvard and Yale, and, you know, yeah, um, I, I was just at a, 
a Warner Music Group legal meeting last week where they, they brought together um, all the different business and legal affairs attorneys from around the globe. And the resumes were just unbelievable. Um, so, and I, I meet more and more people now that do have MBAs or, or some master, masters of marketing something. So um, I think it's, I think it's changing a bit yeah. because, um, because I don't think it's enough to just use your gut anymore. You yeah. know, there's much more going into sort of business intelligence and, making sound business decisions based on, for example, interpreting data, right? The music yeah. business is trying to figure out how we're going to use big data to make better business decisions. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and we are at, at the early days of that and learning how to do that. Right. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time to kind of pair up with a lot of what's always been the label president's gut, right? Yeah, um, so yeah we talked to a lot of... Um, when we talked to a lot of the guys in New York City, that's exactly what we pitched too. Is now with all this analytics and so on, you need people with that type of schooling yeah. instead of the. And they're agreeing now because we we have an MBA in music management too, mm -hmm. and for the bachelors, it's still this idea: go to an internship, and you don't need a three-piece suit. I don't care right. if you're at Harvard or where you are. If they like you, mm -hmm. they like you. But we tell the MBAs to get a three-piece suit and be on the music business. You now yeah. have an MBA and go out and show them what you have taken and what you can do now. Absolutely. And it's starting to pay off. It was very slow at the beginning because we've been doing the MBA probably since about, oh, this, probably 19, uh, 19, 2008 and so on. Okay. And it's just starting now. They're starting to really, you know, see it. Absolutely. And they're seeing the need to have somebody with those skills. In that stage of you going from EMI to law school, how did you even find the time to find a job at EMI? So I'll give you the chronology. So I, I did my bachelor's. Mm -hmm. Then I went to get my master's at the University of Miami. Right away. Right yeah. away from undergrad. Because um, my undergrad was at the University of Florida. There was no music business mm -hmm. program there. But back in the day, some of you around the table will remember, mm -hmm. back in the day there were local music video shows mm -hmm. on local cable mm -hmm. access television. Mm -hmm. And in Gainesville we did have two local video shows. And I set up all the interviews with artists. I did the music news on the air. Because that was pretty much the only music business happening in Gainesville. Mm -hmm. So I went straight and did my master's. As I finished my master's, I knew I wanted to get a law degree. So graduated my master's in May, was getting set to start law school in August, also at the University of Miami, when uh, a good friend of mine who had graduated a year earlier than I did out of the master's program, and this is an important lesson that I tell <laughs> all my students all the time, you'll often get your first job from a fellow student, mm -hmm. especially one who graduates like a year ahead of you is already out there. Mm -hmm. So this friend of mine was working for EMI New York, called me and said, I know you're planning to start law school like next week, but there's this great job that you'd be perfect for and you should interview for it. Um, it was major label, it was New York, that was where I was heading, so... It was sounded right up my alley. So I had the interview, got the job, and the law school at the University of Miami was prepared to hold my um, admission for a year, like a deferment. Mm -hmm. So I thought, great, I'm going to go to New York. If it doesn't work out, I can come back and start law school a year later. Mm -hmm. So I moved to New York, was working for EMI already. So I moved to New York with the EMI job. Um, Worked for EMI just for a year without being in school. That was nice. Mm -hmm. And then said, right, okay, I'm staying here for this, but I'm not giving up the law school plan. So knowing that about halfway through that year, I then started applying to programs that had night law schools in New York. Um, there were a handful, Brooklyn Law, which is where I ended up going. Fordham had one. A few other schools right. did. Mm -hmm. And so um, at that point, I thought, right, I'm still going to get this law degree, but I'm full-time at EMI. So I applied and started law school that following fall at night. So mm -hmm. I was already at EMI, and then... Um, 
um, decided I got to find a New York part-time law school. Mm-hmm. But the thing for people who are listening to think about when they consider that time suck that they're losing, it's yeah. so short term. Oh, it's you nothing. Know, you it's did a it blink of an four eye. Years. I mean, four years when you look back now, 20 years later. It's nothing. It's nothing. And yeah. you have your whole life. I mean, yeah. if you, okay, maybe you're lucky enough to retire early. We should all be so, so lucky. But if not, you're probably working to 67, like, right. you know, many people or whatever the retirement age will be by then. Life is long. When you're like 22, get it done then before yeah. you have a family yeah. and a mortgage. And right. if you're going to keep going to school, just knock it out earlier. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you can never come back, but it just gets infinitely harder the more complicated your life is later. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll get a life in four years. I mean, and even with that time drain, I still went out on Saturday night, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because you can find one night a week right. to go out if you are really pretty hardcore about how dedicated you are to everything all the other days of the mm-hmm. week. I still went out on Saturdays. Did you find it, the learning experience better for you while you were working uh, oh, yeah. because I yeah. absorbed totally I was such a better student Absolutely. when I had a full because I could apply all this stuff to the real Absolutely. my real job and you're just so much more focused it's, yeah. it's so much more relevant to you as well at that mm-hmm. point you know it's not like some ology 101 that you're like okay <laughs> this is really gonna you know world religions interesting but not gonna affect my daily life by the time especially if you're doing a master's or any kind of graduate school while you're working you're seeing that connection all the time about how that's relevant to something you might be doing so it's just so much more meaningful I think. Mm -hmm. And the professors at the law school, a lot of whom taught night classes and day classes, always swore up and down that we were by far their better students because we had better questions because we had a real life. Like we'd worked in the world. So we brought, you know, a very different perspective to the classes and made them much more interesting. And we would get into much, you know, more robust discussions about how does this actually work in practice? So Absolutely. I think once, you know, and once you're done with being an undergrad, there's sort of this maturity thing, this transformation that happens Mm -hmm. where all of a sudden you just sort of get hyper focused and you, Mm -hmm. you know, you can say, all right, I'm I'm paying the money or whoever, somebody's paying the money. You really realize the dollar value of the time you're spending and you have a mission, you have a goal to accomplish. You kind of really can laser focus in. I think in a way that a lot of undergrads don't necessarily. Mm -hmm. Some do, but uh, it's a little different. One of your career highlights was that you helped create Global Release Identifier Grid. Yes. Could you explain what that is? Sure. So I'm a total data geek. You should just know that, which also means that um, if any of you look at the schedule for this conference here, there's like a whole day of what's called the Metadata Summit. Mm -hmm. So um, when I was at EMI, I actually started off, sounds totally strange, coming out of a master's in music business with an undergrad in finance. I started off in the IT department um, in a role uh, called a business analyst. And ultimately, that's a person that can translate between people who do a job and people who need to build systems for those people who do a job so that they're talking the same language and, and make sure that whatever's being built serves the purpose. So I came up over the years in EMI, moving out of IT but, and then into royalties and then ultimately into sort of mechanical licensing. But towards the end of my time there, I also had um, part of my role was being in charge of repertoire data services. And that role has grown tremendously today at at the companies. That would be a person who um, oversees all the data standards for capturing product data and then all that data being provided out to digital partners. Myself and my boss were the two global EMI representatives on an industry-wide project that set out to do a couple of things. We believed we needed a new identifier for 
digital products, right? In the digital space, if you can bundle any way you want, then, you know, unlike in the physical world where you're like, here's an album, here's a single, maybe here's an EP, you could bundle up to your heart's content. You could say, okay, here's the album with these two extra tracks. Here's another version of the album without the extra tracks. Here's three tracks and a screensaver and the lyrics and the booklet. Here's two tracks. Mm -hmm. Like, you can go crazy, right? Because shelf space... It's not an issue. So the thought was that the number of products being put into the marketplace is going to explode, including all the single track digital products, by the way. Um, and we need an identifier for those products. And so that group created something called The Grid. Interestingly enough, though, the timeline of The Grid going live um, didn't happen before iTunes launched. And so iTunes launched and needed a unique identifier for all those digital tracks. And so what ended up being used was the ISRC. But the ISRC was never meant to be a product identifier. The ISRC, the International Standard Recording Code, is meant to represent a recording, a piece of intellectual property, mm. not a product. Right. Um, but it was what was in place at the time. The grid wasn't fully implemented or, or rolled out yet, so that's what everybody started using. Um, and since then, the grid has been implemented at a couple of the major music companies, but most of the indies um, and certainly DIY artists don't really know what it is. But it was the simplest way to describe it, it was like the UPC code for digital. Um, that project also created what morphed into now call, uh, something called DDEX. Um, and that was to start developing a set of electronic data interchange messages. If you think about the way the banks communicate, right, if you're transferring money, there's standard messaging, not just the identifier, but you have to agree, if I'm going to send you you know, a data file with five fields, what are those five fields? They have to be five fields you're expecting to get. So the music industry realizing that we were going to be passing data back and forth with companies like iTunes, um, we needed a set of data messages, standards, um, so that iTunes didn't have in place one standard for Sony, one for Warner, one for Universal, mm -hmm. and that each of us didn't have one standard when we got sales from iTunes, one standard when we got sales from Spotify. So that was the idea behind the set of messaging um, suites, and that became that project, which was called the MI3P, Music Industry Integrated Identifiers Project turned into DDEX, which, which is alive and thriving today. And the grid is um, a, an international standard. It's managed by IFP, but generally it's not used by other than the major companies. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this Metadata Summit stuff, I've been talking this language since <laughs> the late 90s. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's, it's great for me. So like, what's the next thing for grid? What else can we do as an industry? Well, as an industry, we need to be hardcore about adopting standards. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's not the case even today that despite the fact there is a standard message for record companies notifying digital services that this is the information about their new product, and there is a standard message for those companies reporting back sales usage, despite the fact that there are published standards, not everybody's using them, which is crazy. That's the whole point. Yeah. The entire point of these standards is for us to be hardcore. And if somebody says, oh, I want to use something different, you say, no, no. Do you think like Bank of America or some bank could just go rogue and decide not to follow yeah. a standard? No, it's, it's, we have to be much more rigid about enforcing those standards. And, and what we're seeing in addition to the messaging is um, something called style guides. And those are really standards around naming conventions and things like that. And as an industry right now, we don't have one single style guide iTunes put out its style guide, um, the Music Business Association has a style guide, and Spotify has a style guide. And right off the bat, I'm already seeing problems where Spotify and iTunes have different style guides. And to me, that is just 
the wrong way to go. Right. Absolutely the wrong way to go. A huge amount of data problems in this industry, not all, but many are caused by a lack of standards or if where we do have a standard, people are not absolutely adhering to it. And we're just not going to get our house in order until that happens. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's a big thing. So what I would say to students is, Learn all about this stuff. And when you go and work at a small company, a small record company, a small publishing company, to start off with, or even a big one, push this point. You know, we have to learn the standards and abide by them. Um, if, if we want to see efficiencies come out of all this information management, still lots of problems, you know, in the whole information pipeline, which ultimately prevents people from getting paid. Um, and if we could really be pretty rigid about these standards, I, I believe it would really make a difference. Like you're saying, there's not there's not a lot of enforcement with it. How can how can somebody enforce all these things? Well, that's I mean, the problem. Yeah. It's not like there is you know a government body that kind of yeah. can crack down. It's all voluntary right. on some level, right? And you just kind of wonder if at some point some of the big players can just sort of choose to say, you don't get to play ball unless you do this. You, know? you need a universal Warner and Sony to all without colluding. Yeah. I guess that I don't know if that's collusion or not. Or or the big DSPs, right? Because uh -huh. they're the recipients of it, uh -huh. you mm -hmm. know, but is, there's the question, right? Is iTunes really going to tell one of those majors, or right. not iTunes, but whoever, Spotify, you name it, really going to say, you know what, I'm not going to put your content out if you don't change to the standard. Mm -hmm. And until somebody is prepared to really, like, drop that, you know, kind of demand, mm -hmm. people will, companies will still have their own slight variations on it. It sounds kind of, it reminds me of, you know, the banks and how they took over everything. And I feel like that could just happen in the music industry if we don't get together. You know, what I found, which was a little, a little frustrating, is, you know, I left DMI in 2003. I moved back to Florida. I did some other stuff for a little while and then got back into the music business as a professor and started consulting. And then I started, you know, coming to these events every year. And the first real metadata summit that they started having here was several years ago was really, really small. And when I heard people talk about the problems they were having, my head wanted, I just wanted to explode because like, these were problems we identified in the late 90s, early 2000s. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. That the industry is still struggling with this stuff? This is not rocket science. Mm -hmm. We knew the answers then, 13 years ago at least, if not before then. Why haven't we had the will to do it? It's just right. ridiculous. And some of it, I think, is just a a lack of willingness to follow standards. Everybody wants to be a snowflake, you know. Um, the other of which is, I think, senior management, like CEOs, CFOs of the big content companies have to understand how important this is. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I remember back in the day, like late 90s, you know, trying to go to bat for money to do data cleanup. And, you know, if you can imagine you're lined up at the CFO's office, you know, and some people were in front of you pitching, you know, oh, I need 200 grand to make this music video. And someone's like, I need 300 grand to do this really cool thing. And then here you are, I need 300 grand to clean up our metadata. And you know, the CFO's like, oh God, go away. Like that's, I don't wanna, I don't wanna hear from you. Um, and today it's still a challenge to do all the kinds of things that I think a lot of people in these big companies would wanna do in terms of data cleanup and system changes. They still struggle to get the approval from the people that control the dollars. To, to fund the effort, you know? And what you'll have CFOs say is, well, what's the return on investment? Why should we spend another 500 grand cleaning up the data? And it's very difficult to prove out a return on investment. But, you know, on some level, if I look at you and let's say I go to your house and your house is an absolute pigsty, and I say you should clean this up, and you sort of say to me, well, what's the return on investment? Mm -hmm. Well, some things just need to be done, yeah. you know? I mean, 
it, it sometimes can be hard to quantify into exact dollars and cents, but it's one of those things to me that just is so obvious, um, and yet that's the pushback you get. Again, you can also say, well, it's long-term. It's beyond yeah. mm-hmm. what we it's, even know, absolutely. but it's, it's investing in the now for what for things we probably don't even realize we're going to benefit from. Absolutely. And when you have publicly held companies that are thinking quarter to quarter, yep. they have so much pressure to do that, so they're going to fund the music video that for has Beyonce a quick return right yeah, away. Because exactly. we know, yeah. So it's hard, and those mm-hmm. are the factors that work against getting our information house in order. So it's not going to implode. It's not about to go off the cliff. It's just that um, it's gotten a lot better, but there's it could be so much better still. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't think it's moving fast enough. Uh, <laughs> it need to be done you know. yesterday. Yes, like thirteen years ago. So. You have all of this experience with EMI. You've done incredible things with, you know, help creating grid. Why, why go to teach? Um, in that I was in Miami. I wanted to stay in Miami. And despite growing up there, I'm, I'm British and Australian, and I don't speak a, uh, any Spanish at all, <laughs> which is really pathetic. I took French in high school, and I should have taken Spanish. Um, so I don't speak any Spanish. And the music industry in Miami is um, primarily Latin, not mm-hmm. exclusively, but... Um, doing the kinds of work that I had done at EMI, um, it was going to have to be, let's say, something in the Latin regional office, and without complete fluency in Spanish, that was not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one of the factors that sort of had me thinking, okay, so if I want to get back into the music business, what are my options in Miami? And the truth is, this is another thing I tell my students, if, if you've decided geographically you want to be in a certain place, then that doesn't mean necessarily you're going to get your dream job there. Mm. Um, maybe for your dream job, you have to go somewhere else, right? You kind of have to decide what parameters you're trying to work within. So um, I was in Miami and said, right, okay, dream job's not going to happen in terms of uh, information management type stuff. What else would make me feel really, you know, fulfilled? Um, and, you know, in my hunting around for things, I, I came across the job at the University of Miami. And it was such a perfect fit because obviously I knew the program really well, having done it. And there were times um, over the years I was at EMI, particularly in the early days, where I actually would travel around the country training people on how to use certain systems. So I was sort of a training officer um, in terms of teaching them how to set up what we call label copy, but now we call product metadata. Um, I was like the main person training people on that. And then when we finished putting in place a royalty system, um, part of uh, when you put in place a system, particularly a large system, at the tail end of the project before you kind of turn it on, you have something called the user acceptance test. And you are taking a bunch of people who are going to be using this every day through every piece of the system and having them kind of try to do their job, make sure it works. Um, and so for that project, there was like a 12-week 12-week UAT um, every day for like five hours. And I ran that, and it was in a classroom setting, and I would say, okay, everybody, for today, we're all going to set up a new vendor. You know, okay, everybody, this is how you do it. So there was a lot of training involved, classroom settings, and I loved those days when I was at EMI. I really enjoyed them, and I always got great feedback from the people that were in those classes with me that really enjoyed it. And so, you know, when I came across the job at UM, I thought, wow, this is such a great opportunity to take my music business knowledge and combine it with something I really enjoyed over the years, which is teaching and explaining things. And so it just kind of came together really well. 
Um, and actually, just before I even started teaching, knowing I had gotten the job at UM, I then started consulting to also kind of keep one foot in the industry and um, was flying back and forth a lot to New York, which is something I've done pretty much ever <laughs> since 2006, so that I kind of was able to be both in academia but stay very involved in the industry itself. So you said um, Miami had more of the Latin genre to it. Mm -hmm. I saw that you also worked for the Selena brand. Is that based in Miami, or how did that work? So out funnily enough, no. Um, the, the Selena brand was a um, sort of a small spinoff um, endeavor that I did with Selena's family. We're talking about um, not Selena Gomez, yeah. Selena Quintanilla. <laughs> Selena Gomez was named after Selena Quintanilla. Yeah. Um, it was a project that I worked on with her family, and they're based in Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, but the the kind of work it was really could have been done from any anywhere in that it was related to the licensing of her name and likeness, name and image. Um, so that was a little project, uh, sort of a, I don't want to call it a project, but a little endeavor that we, we set out to do. Um, and it was interesting. It had some success, but we ultimately decided that, you know, it, it made more sense to just have the family handle those matters going forward. Um, so I, I got connected with that through a friend of mine who was at EMI Latin in Miami. Um, but that actually wasn't, wasn't Miami. It's, it's interesting. I learned a lot working on that project, particularly about um, Latin music and how, you know, uh, those of us who are not Latino tend to think of it as one big kind of blob, Latin music. And it's so much more, you know, diverse than that. Um, and, you know, just right off the bat, looking at Miami versus Texas, let's say, or more of the Southwest, you know, they have much more of a Mexican influence. Um, Tejano music and all of that is deeply rooted in, in Mexican music, whereas Miami's got a lot of Cuban music. Um, so, you know, it's the Selena project was, was really based in Texas in terms of the, the content, but uh, Miami is Latin with much more of a Caribbean kind of influence. So you jump from Florida to New York. I feel like they're totally two different spectrums. How is that transition between the New York music industry and Florida? Um, well, they, they operate quite differently. I mean, New York is what you would imagine it is. It's fast-paced. You know, it's, it's uh, what have you done for me lately? You know, keep going, keep going. And I kind of like that pace. Uh, Miami, the pace is a little bit slower. I think it's a little bit more influenced by Latin America, where, you know, in general, business has a little bit more of a, a laid-back pace to it. Um, you know, that's just sort of sort of the way of, of it I, I've found. Um, but I'm, I'm nowhere near as active in the Miami music industry as I am in New York. Most of my music industry work, consulting work, you know, contacts are all really with New York, as opposed to Miami, my main, you know, my, all my time in Miami is focused mainly on the, the university. Um, I know people all over the Miami Latin music industry. Of course, it's a small community, and I've been on the Florida chapter Grammy board, and I know lots of those folks, but most of my work um, outside of the university has been for projects based in New York. When you consult, what, what does that mean for, so, for a, an attorney? Yeah, so it's interesting, though. I mean, I am a lawyer. I'm licensed in New York and mm -hmm. Florida, but I don't get consulted on legal matters. Um, mm -hmm. The kind of consulting work that I've done uh, has more to do with business process. So the business processes that are used by people processing royalties or processing mechanical licensing. Um, so, you know, that, let's say there's a, let's just take mechanical licensing for an example. You know, it's like a 20-step process if you really understand what's involved, which is more than just going on the Harry Fox website. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll be brought in to look at how a process is working and figure out how it can be improved, for example. Um, like one of the projects I did with Sony um, involved taking their existing 
uh, they called it copyright administration department, where at one point in time people were working very siloed so that some people worked on physical products, some worked on digital products, some worked on video, and said, hey, let's restructure this department to have people have a bit more of a holistic look so that you know if you're working on the Beyonce project, you handled everything for digital, physical, and video. Um, so I helped them come up with a way to restructure that department. Um, the royalties um, group at Sony, they had implemented a new royalty system, had some snags. I was asked to come in and look at sort of the way they went about it, identify ways to fix some of those snags. So that's the kind of work that I tend to do. It tends to be involving royalty processing or systems, mechanical or copyright licensing or systems, mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff. So you're more on the contractual side of law. Have you ever done anything with litigation? <laughs> so there's this tiny little time spot in my, my bio where when I first moved to Miami, I mentioned I went out of the music business. Yeah. I actually became a criminal prosecutor for oh. a few years. <laughs> uh, I was an assistant state attorney in Miami, which is like the fourth largest prosecutor's office behind like New York, LA, and Chicago. So I did that for a few years, and that was pretty litigation heavy. Yeah. You know, within a few years, I had like six jury trials. Oh, wow. Um, they throw you deep in the deep end um, to see if you can swim. Uh, you know, it's a little crazy. So I, I was, a, I did have some experience with that, and I've, I've been an expert witness before. Um, uh, with respect to calculating royalty damages. Right. So those have been my main experiences with litigation. It is intense. Talk in the courtroom, would you say? Oh, well, as a prosecutor, yeah. five days a week, every day. Oh, every day. Every All day. All the time. You're in the process. Because if it's not a trial, you're dealing with motions in front of the court. So mm -hmm. literally, you are in your courtroom pretty much five days a week. How would you? How would somebody go about, you know, because with I know with family court and criminal court, you can go ahead and file in order to show cause or do an emergent uh, you know, motion of enforce litigants' rights. How does somebody go up to you and say, "I I know somebody's suing. Or I need to sue somebody. They they copyrighted my work. I want to take them to court." How does that process go about? So so that's civil, right? Mm -hmm. That's not criminal. Copyright infringement is a civil case, and it's brought, generally speaking, under federal copyright protection. Unless you're talking about something that's not protected by federal law, like pre 1972 sound recordings. Mm -hmm. Right. So first off, if somebody has infringed your copyright, you need to understand if they've truly infringed and understand what the basics are of a copyright infringement case, right, which is access mm -hmm. and copying, right? Um, so you make sure you actually have a case. That's one of the first things a lawyer is going to do is look at the facts and, you know, because you get crazies. People will walk out of there and go, oh, Prince stole Windows Cry for me. Sure, <laughs> sure he did. You know, um, so that's one of the first things a lawyer is going to look at. Is there any merit to this case? They'll have to figure out if they're going to be bringing a case under the federal copyright law or under state copyright law. Um, again, that's only going to uh, apply to sound recordings that are not protected by federal law, pre-72. And then there's a whole legal process that unfolds. Often it will start with a cease and desist letter to somebody saying, stop what you're doing and, um, you know, you're violating my rights. I'm willing to settle with you. Let's say if you just stop it, that'll be the end of it. Or stop it and pay me this amount of money and that'll be the end of it. So usually things don't start with a lawsuit. They start with a demand to stop doing something. Um, and then if that gets ignored, then you know usually consider if you're going to go file a petition and basically bring a lawsuit. And your petition outlines the allegations and all of that. And then the, the defendant has to file an answer. And then you fight out whether or not the case should be dismissed. Um, that's the first time you start seeing real documents that make legal arguments, and you know you go from there. Um, that's sort of you know the anatomy of a copyright infringement case. Now, with all the the fees that go with filing a case like that, is 
it genuinely worth it to enforce it? Not just for the money aspect of it. I know I've seen some cases where people are just after it for the money. Is it is the money worth spending it on the lawyer versus just letting the copyright infringement occur? Does well, you have to look at how you're being harmed by that infringement. Right. If there's no harm and it's somebody that you know is gung-ho about getting the money for it, would they actually get any money for that? I'm sure, I don't have any statistics, but I'm mm -hmm. sure for some amount of cease and desist letters that get sent, and you could hire a lawyer to send a cease and desist letter. That's not going to cost you right. thousands of dollars, generally. Um, sometimes that's the end of it, and the person stops it, or if you say, look, if you pay me back what it costs me to hire this lawyer, that's the end of it, right? Um, and that happens a lot. We don't see those because right. they never get filed, so we would have no way to track that. Um, but, you know, absolutely, if you're going to go beyond that, mm -hmm. going to trial is an expensive matter. You're going to add up legal fees, and who knows what the judge will decide. And so all the way along the, all along the way, you'll have to decide if it continues to be worth worth the money. And you know? from my understanding, judges generally don't have, like with lawyers, they don't go to entertainment law school. They go to a general law school, so they don't. They might not necessarily know. It's all always the, a crapshoot when you rely on a judge to decide anything yeah, in exactly. your life. That's just generally a place you don't ever want to be, right. <laughs> because it's the luck of the draw. You have no idea who you're going to get. Mm -hmm. You might get somebody who's super knowledgeable about this area of the law. You might get somebody who has no idea, and then a lot of the lawyer's job is to educate them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, students don't necessarily realize when you get a law degree, it's it's a general law degree. Yeah. Um, you might do an LLM, which comes after your JD, which will have a specific focus. It's an LLM in something, but a JD is generally not in something, and you take a general bar. Um, some exceptions are a patent law. Uh, you need a specific bar to take for the patents uh, to become a licensed patent attorney, and you can't even sit that bar if you haven't had a certain amount of uh, science courses. But generally speaking, a JD is a JD, and so the chances of you getting a judge that's had any kind of entertainment law, intellectual property yeah. law, you have no idea. And judges are crazy and juries are crazy. So you always try to settle things out of court, always, right. if you can. Yeah, I mean, you can go to court saying, you know, my, my work's been infringed upon, but meanwhile, he just did 20 years in the criminal system and would have no idea. Absolutely. A lot of what lawyers do in trials is educate. Educate the judge, educate the jury. There's a lot involved in that. So I guess going back to teaching was just natural and because you'd be educating anyway if you were going to trial. Yeah, one so, way or another, yeah. you're always educating somebody on something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm. mm. Well, good. Awesome. <laughs> I, did, I accomplished something today. Woohoo! Woo uh, one last question because I saw you're an avid Prince fan. Oh, yes. I have to ask. My heart is broken. I know. Yeah. <laughs> how... how how, what have you been doing to cope with the loss oh. of such an icon? <laughs> oh. Actually, what I've been doing is yeah. listening to his music um, all the time. What I've done, and if you can see this on my Facebook page, um, I rarely post anything, or let alone anything public, but mm -hmm. I've put this out there. Um, three weeks ago, I started saying, right, every single week until I'm through all of them, I'm going to re-listen to every album oh, wow. in the order that he did them. Um, and so each week I start with the next one on Sunday and just all through the week just listen to it and listen to it and listen to it um, to refamiliarize myself with the songs and it's like you know it's like seeing old friends and stuff and so I'm now on week three um, so I just just started that um, this Sunday and so I'm going to keep doing that and it's going to take like at least the better part of the next year because the number of albums he's put out is is uh, a very, very large number. Um, but so that's been what I've been doing to cope with it. Uh, well, we can say it's No, not yet. Nope, not yet either. Um, this is um, for you. So the first mm. week was, um, wow, now I'm drawing a blank all of a sudden. <laughs> 
The first week, his first album was called Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the second album is called For You. Hold on. I'm really, I should not be drawing a blank, but you guys just totally <laughs> caught me <laughs> off guard. So I'm like, what? It's, um, it is. I'll tell you right now. She doesn't really like Prince. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, she just wants attention. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah if you only knew. Um, no. Dirty Mind. Sorry. Dirty Mind is album number three. <laughs> so it was Prince. And then For You, week number three is Dirty Mind. Um, so, then it's yeah. 1999. Uh, no, then it's controversy. Then it's 1999. Yes. That's what I thought. See, <laughs> I know yeah. right. you're not a true Prince fan. I am not. I like Prince know. more now than when I was in high school. I hated Prince. <laughs> I did like Purple Rain though. Everybody good. I'm glad you came around to it eventually. Yeah, yeah. yeah and let's go crazy. I get upset with Let's Go Crazy because crazy when you hear it on the radio, they always cut the guitar solo. Oh no, that's such a great guitar solo. Michael Jackson's son. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He was right up. Good thing for Michael Jackson though, because he opened the door for Prince, especially on MTV. Yeah. Would you say because uh, when was 1999? Well, let's see, Michael Jackson was 82, and 1999 was right around 82 because Purple Rain was 84. Yeah. So it was. Uh, yeah. um, has anyone ever told you, Serona, that um, if you married Elton John, your name would be Serona Elton John? Oh my God. I knew he said there was a joke coming. Yeah. I was waiting for it. I wrote that one down yesterday. Did you come was, up with that? I did on my own. Oh I figured you've been asked that before. You have been asked Actually, that my name would be Serona White because his name is Reginald uh, Dwight. Reginald sorry, Dwight, Reginald right, Dwight. Right. Yeah. Um, but I will give you back a funny story. So my father's real name is John Elton. Mm-hmm. And back in mm-hmm. the day when people actually used phone books, <laughs> it was, of course, listed by last name. So it was Elton, John. And every so often <laughs> we would get a phone call of somebody right. saying, is Elton John there? And you're like, well, no. Kind of. <laughs> so, you know, that did happen occasionally back in the, you know, the old days phone books and all that stuff. I do have have a real quick question. Um, You were involved in securing the mechanical licenses for EMI when the iTunes store opened. Yes. So we just heard um, there were a number of lawsuits brought against Spotify, for Mm -hmm. example, recently because the mechanical licenses were not properly licensed by companies like Spotify. Mm -hmm. I was curious how you felt about that considering it's 13 years later since the iTunes store opened and it's almost like going back to square one in a way. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, I feel two two different kinds of sympathy, actually, at the, the news about that case. Uh, of course, my first sympathy goes to, you know, publishers and songwriters who are not getting paid, obviously, right? But having my background, I also have some sympathy for Spotify in that you know, in the U.S., the way we handle mechanical licensing, it is the most inefficient, crazy way of doing things um, that requires such a high degree of expertise, of sophisticated systems, of manpower, that, you know, coming into this industry, I think a lot of people, like, like a Spotify or entities like Spotify, don't realize at the outset just what it's going to take to do it. And, you know... I'm a big proponent of saying if, if you're going to come play ball in this industry, you need to learn how it works and, you know, you don't get to use people's music for free and just make your business model out of it without spending the money. But I can also look at the mechanical licensing process in the U.S. and say that is just so broken where, you know, you literally are having to confirm on a share-by-share basis. And if you look at some of the popular urban tracks often urban tracks because samples just make it, you know, exponentially more, you could have 15 writers. And you're confirming, you know, each share with each writer's publisher um, and having to capture all of that in a system and pay that all back out. And, you know, you can't walk in Office Depot and get a system that does that. Um, And in fact, if you look at the major music companies who have to pay this sort of thing, just like, you know, Spotify would, 
right now, Sony has a system, Warner's using the Sony system, and Universal has their own. And the projects to build those systems are multi-million dollar, multi-year projects. It's not a small undertaking. And that system has no other use for anything else. It's just U.S. mechanicals. And so I think it seems to me, obviously, Spotify didn't quite realize what it was going to take from an infrastructure investment point of view. Um, and so shame on them for not figuring that out at the outset. But wow, why do we have to make it so hard? You know, um, I, I think that if you look at the way it's handled in Europe and just about everywhere else in the world where there is a, a central society mm-hmm. or even two um, that maintain all that information so it only has to be correct in one or two places, then all the digital the DSPs can work with them rather than everybody having that same thing in their systems. I bet if you took a really popular song that's been covered by a lot of people and you looked across, they will exist in Sony, in Sony Records, Warner Music, Universal, the record side, the three publishing sides probably for some reason or another, iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, mm-hmm. everyone's got them in their mm-hmm. systems, plus ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, HFA, everybody has some variation of that in their systems, mm-hmm. all of which are probably not identical. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you think, how does this make any right. sense? So, you know, sympathy because ultimately it's causing people not to get paid and there's no excuse for that. Um, but sympathetic because I can... I can imagine, you know, just staring at what's involved to do that as an entrant coming into the the music industry saying, wow, so I've got to basically come up, spend a couple million dollars, hire a bunch of experts to build me some kind of tool and then hire an army of people to do this work. Yeah, that's true. But wow, is that really, you know, what we should be spending the money on? Shouldn't that be a bit more streamlined? Well, I think we should streamline this interview and put a stop to it right around now. Okay. What do you think about that? Because we've run out, we've run against a wall. (laughs) Well, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, I know. So we want to first thank uh, Alyssa Warner for doing a wonderful job. That was great. That was definitely a C-level version of that. And we want to thank Sorona Elton John for being here and making (laughs) this happen. I have all your records, so I'm going to listen to one every week. One a week. 1999 is in there somewhere. (laughs) We want to thank Dr. Esteban Marconi for being here and keeping into it. Yeah. And And of course, my co-host, Professor David Kirk Philp. You can call him Professor David Kirk Phil. Okay. And that is all. So we want to thank myself. Thank you. Thank me very much. That's right. And uh, we want to thank you for listening to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio 18.7 WPSC. And also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. And at the end of every one of these interviews, we don't say hello because that would be the wrong thing to say instead. The thing that we say, Sarona, is goodbye. Adios! Adios!